From the High Center Studios of Messiah College, where we seek to grow from the mistakes of our own pasts, here in Grantham, Pennsylvania, this is the Wave Improvement Leads Home podcast, a bi-weekly discussion dedicated to American history, historical thinking, and the role of history in our everyday lives. And now, here's your host, author and award-winning historian, John Fia. Thank you, Drew, and welcome to episode 48 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. How are things going, Drew? Pretty good, pretty good. We're in the thick of a, a of a deep project here at uh, Digital Harrisburg Initiative. For the new listener, that's the uh, the project where I'm the project manager here, a digital history project here at Messiah College, uh, and we are we are working on an exhibit that's coordinating with the with the construction of a new a new monument dedicated to the African American history of Harrisburg, uh, and specifically on the social history of a neighborhood known as the Old Eighth Ward. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with the old Eighth Ward in Harrisburg, but have visited the city, uh, that is the neighborhood, the residential neighborhood that uh, was demolished to make space for what is today the Capitol complex. Not not just the Capitol building, but all of those other government buildings that surround the Capitol building. So uh, when did this uh, when did this demolition take place? It, it took place over a number of years, but in the in the 1910s generally, and that demolition was a coordinated effort in the midst of what we often call the the city beautiful movement yeah. and and many people who've studied early 20th century american history urban planning and and uh social movements might be familiar with what the city beautiful movement is but it's you know an, an effort by civic leaders to to beautify the urban spaces that uh were becoming increasingly um dirty unhealthy uh in as a result of industrialization but um also did so with a uh, with a heavy hand of paternalism. These are predominantly white civic leaders who are making decisions for communities of which they are not a part. So you uh, basically have sort of white middle class people who want to beautify the city of Harrisburg and are part of this national movement, raising essentially raising with a Z uh, an entire neighborhood. Is it a largely uh, African American neighborhood? Is it you know? Is it lower class? What's the social demographic? You mentioned African American, but was it what was was there any more to the socio demographic makeup of the old Eighth Ward? Well, yeah, it's I mean it's definitely working class. Um, it is predominantly African American. It's you know it's it's the site of many of the earliest and and in fact quite historically important African American institutions that that still persists in Harrisburg today. But it's also, you know, it's it's a multi-ethnic neighborhood. It's yeah. it's also the landing place of the immigration of, of the Russian Jewish population that, mm-hmm. again, also still persists uh, in Harrisburg to this day. Uh, you know, one of the things we've been th- talking about a lot at the initiative is, you know, the narrative has kind of been about the destruction of the Old Eighth Ward. And, and one of the things, especially these black and Jewish uh, religious institutions demonstrate those communities don't disappear. They actually yeah. just they just move, uh, and they move into different neighborhoods. And, and still today, you can visit uh, these congregations, the same congregations that were there in the old Eighth Ward, and the communities that surround them. They they move to different parts throughout the city. And, and actually, we have some students who are doing some really brilliant social history and GIS work, tracing where these people move, yeah. uh, and and trying to tell their story. So thinking it. Uh, you know, yes, the buildings were destroyed and the physical geography was changed dramatically, but the communities persist and they're still around in Harrisburg today. And so trying to th- think past just saying of oh, the destruction of the Old Eighth right, Ward. Right. But, you know. So the Old Eighth Ward, the geographical space, at least, in which the Old Eighth Ward existed. So if you were coming into Harrisburg, what would that be? What, is, what would that be? The north, the west, 
uh, the east side of the Capitol or the if you face yeah. the front door of the Capitol, it it is the space behind behind the Capitol, the Capitol right? The, there was the second Pennsylvania Capitol burned down in the late 19th century. And so there was this effort to build this new capital. And in fact, the new capital predates the destruction of the old Eighth Ward. And we've been spending a lot of time in uh, photographic archives looking at pictures of the old Eighth Ward, in which you can see the brand new capital, what is yeah. the Ted A, the third Pennsylvania Capitol building, um, rising and or even being completed in the background. But the space where now there's the Soldiers Memorial. And there's a green space. Green space, there too, yeah. yeah. That, that is the old Eighth Ward. Between the Capitol building and what is now the, um, yeah. the the rail lines that go through Harrisburg. Yeah, we're recording this in March of 2019, and later in this semester in April, or actually early May, I think it is, Drew's going to take my Pennsylvania history class through the Old Eighth Ward. We're going to do some readings and stuff on that. Tell us really quick, Drew, you have a grant, you know, you're involved with, with the Digital Harrisburg Initiative, which you direct. What exactly are you doing now to kind of reclaim the the old Eighth Ward in Harrisburg? It's a really fascinating project. Well, yeah, specifically the project we're working on is titled the Look Up, Look Out campaign. Mm. Uh, and it's a kind of, we hope, a pretty innovative public history project in which we are going to be installing throughout the Capitol complex 12 posters. Uh, and each poster will link to a static website through either a, a, you know, a URL or a mm. QR code, if you're familiar with with QR codes. And in each poster is designed through images and through historical narrative to reorient the thousands of state workers who move through the Capitol complex every day, most of whom are not necessarily from Harrisburg, right. and help them to revisualize yeah. that space. One of the nice things is that you know the, the change in the Old Eighth Ward corresponds with a proliferation of photography. So we have a lot of really great photos of the businesses, the churches, and just these kinds of candid photos of the streets and we can use those, and in fact, we even have some students who've been doing some really interesting photography work, orienting and overlaying the old photos on new photos, yeah. and and using using digital sliders so you can kind of slide between both photographs and and really immediately see the transformation. That's what we're we're really hoping. You know, there's a lot has been written about the old Eighth Ward, and you know the the stories are there, and they're not, we're not writing as much new history as much as we are trying to deploy the history that's already there in ways that engages with the public and really helps them to be present in a place that has dramatically changed uh, yeah. in 100 years since the demolition of the Old Eighth Ward. The reason I wanted to talk a little bit about this with you is because it's a nice segue into our episode today about the role that history plays in helping us to understand the history of race relations in America, but also perhaps the way history informs our present conversations about race and racial reconciliation in this country. And uh, today our guest is Jamar Tisby. Uh, he's the author of a brand new book titled The Color of Compromise, The Truth About the American Church's Complicity with Racism. Yeah, I'm really excited for this interview. I mean, Tisby writes not only as a as a historian and, and as an African-American, so someone who is both deeply historically informed, but also has experienced uh, very personally some of these issues. But he's not writing for the black community. He's not writing for his people. He's, at, he's actually writing to us, the, the white church. I think we'll try to get him to talk about this in the interview. His audience here, I think, is very important. I think scholars are going to find very little that's new 
in Tisby's book. Uh, he draws heavily from American historians and historians of the African-American experience. But I think the color of compromise is making such a splash right now because Jamar is calling out the white evangelical church for its racism, and he's using history to do it. I have followed his Twitter feed and the response to color of compromise Uh, If that Twitter feed is any indication or if some of the white evangelical Twitter feeds that I follow are any indication, he's already taking some serious heat from certain sectors of of white evangelicalism. And we're going to try to get him to talk a little bit about that as well uh, during the course of the interview. We'll get to Jamar in a few minutes. But first, Drew, tell us how our listeners can connect with the podcast. The Wave Improvement Leads Home is a proud member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. Head over to recordedhistory.net to check out some of our fellow network podcasts. Our podcast is brought to you through the generous donations of Lisa DeGuardi, Ron Schooler, Kate Logan, Margaret Graves, and Gretchen Adams. Also, big shout out to Adam Stahl, who increased his pledge amount to the Sterling level since our last recording. Thank you, Adam. And as always, many thanks to Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. We are also sponsored by the Lindhurst Group. History is a critical but often overlooked part of nurturing and developing vital communities. Are you trying to build stronger communities through your history organization or museum? Do you wonder if your organization is working as efficiently as possible? Bob Beatty and the Lindhurst Group can help with organizational assessments and in-depth strategic planning. Over his 20-year career in nonprofits in the public sector, Bob Beatty has honed proven strategies to engage communities deeply in the work of history organizations and museums. Contact Bob at lindhurstgroup.org, that's L-Y-N-D-H-U-R-S-T group.org, to learn how the Lindhurst Group can help you help make your institution the asset your community wants and needs. If you want to become a sponsor of the show, please head over to thewaveimprovement.com and click support. And please, 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 and in this episode, especially because I think it's so relevant to many of our communities, many of our social groups and our church organizations, share this with your friends. Tell people who need to hear this story to put the earbuds in their ears, download the episode, pair it with their sync system in their cars, do whatever they need to do to listen to the podcast because the best way to get podcasts to new listeners is simply to shout it out to someone near you, right? Social media is great, and if you want to, you can follow us at T-W-O-I-L-H Podcast on Twitter and Facebook, but the personal the personal endorsement is really the gold of, of spreading listenership among podcasts. You know, I was thinking, Drew, as you were, you were talking there, that our sponsor, Bob Beatty from the Lynnhurst Group, this is a subject I think he, he might be passionate about, too. Uh, so often the voices of African-Americans are missing from some of the narratives we tell in sort of museums and historical sites and so forth. I think Bob is really sensitive to the idea that it's not just a matter of kind of, well, let's just throw in an African-American voice here or there, but to really allow the African-American story and, and some of the darker moments and parts of that story to sort of define how we tell the past in our public spaces, our museums, our historical sites. I mean, history really is, I think Bob would agree with me, history really is a, a kind of mirror. You know, it, it forces us to see not only the good things, but also the things where we have taken wrong turns. And, and Bob is there and the Lindhurst Group is there to help 
uh, those institutions that are looking to think more creatively about how to bring in diverse voices, to think of creative ways to bring those things into play in the way we present history to the public. So definitely check him out at lindhurstgroup.org. Before we get to Jamar Tisby, you have some commentary for us, John. Pick up any general survey of Christianity in America and turn to the section on the social gospel. It is likely that the narrative will be dominated by two names. Washington Gladden, the pastor of the First Congregational Church in Columbus, Ohio, from 1882 to 1910, and his contemporary, Walter Rauschenbusch, a theologian who taught at Rochester Theological Seminary. Gladden, Rauschenbusch, and lesser-known white social gospel Protestants preached that Christianity, with its otherworldly focus, had failed to address the moral problems facing the United States at the turn of the 20th century. These social gospelers sought to Christianize America through reforms, government programs, and voluntary societies designed to address poverty, disease, immorality, and all forms of injustice resulting from industrialization, urbanization, and immigration. It is highly unlikely that the names Mordecai Johnson, Benjamin Mays, or Howard Thurman would appear in such a textbook. Yet, according to historian Gary Dorian in Breaking White Supremacy, his new book, these leaders of the black social gospel movement represented an intellectual tradition in American Christianity that was more accomplished and influential than the white movement led by Gladden and Rauschenbusch. I recently had the opportunity to review Dorian's Breaking White Supremacy for the mainline Protestant magazine, The Christian Century. It is a deeply researched and beautifully written extension of Dorian's award-winning book, The New Abolition, W.E.B. Du Bois and the Black Social Gospel. That book was a study of the roots of the black social gospel movement. Now Dorian continues the story in Breaking White Supremacy. In fact, Breaking White Supremacy is really two books in one. It is a history of the black social gospel as it unfolded in the years between Du Bois and the civil rights movement, and a history of how this movement influenced Martin Luther King Jr. in the years between Montgomery, 1955, and Memphis. 1968. The final two chapters focus on the legacy of the black social gospel in the work of theologians J. D. Otis Roberts and James Cone and civil rights and women's rights lawyer Paulie Murray. Much of Dorian's early narrative centers around Howard University in the 1930s and 1940s. During this era, the historically black college in Washington, D.C. was led by charismatic and controversial President Mordecai Johnson. Johnson was deeply influenced by Rauch and Bush's theology and sought to turn Howard University into a center of black intellectual life where the social gospel would be applied to the cause of racial injustice. He filled his faculty with like-minded scholars, including Thurman, who served as Howard's chaplain from 1932 to 1944, and Mays, who ran the religion department from 1934 to 1940 until he left to become president of Morehouse College. The quote-unquote troika of Johnson, Thurman, and Mays brought Gandhian non-resistance into the fight for civil rights. 
Thurman and May spent time with Gandhi in India, and Johnson was convinced that Gandhi's nonviolent approach to the world represented the essence of true religion. Whatever Martin Luther King Jr. learned from Gandhi was filtered through the black social gospel cultivated at Howard and transferred through Mays to his college experience at Morehouse. Johnson, Thurman, and Mays believed that social justice was best accomplished through socialism. They did not separate the fight for racial equality from the fight against poverty. Dorian reminds us that King's Poor People's Campaign of 1967 and 68 was fully consistent with the black social gospel tradition he inherited and embraced. Throughout his career, King had to appeal to liberal politicians like Lyndon Johnson in order to keep the movement in the political mainstream and often had to quell those who wanted to take it in a more radical direction. He was a Christian socialist at heart. The bulk of Dorian's book tells the familiar story of King's career as the leader of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. He connects King to the social Christianity of Johnson, Mays, Thurman, and others with varying degrees of success. But his argument that the King wing of the civil rights movement would have been impossible without the work of these oft-forgotten Christian activists is convincing. After reading Breaking with White Supremacy, it will be hard to see King's formation in any other way. Dorian is clearly sympathetic to the black social gospel, but he is also a good historian who does not gloss over some of the darker moments in the fight for civil rights. He calls our attention to the authoritarian leadership style of Mordecai Johnson at Howard. We learn about the disappointing end to the career of Adam Clayton Powell Jr., one of the black social gospel's only national politicians. Pauli Murray's story shows that the civil rights movement was often a male chauvinist affair. And Dorian does not let King and his fellow clergymen off the hook for what can only be described as serial adultery. In the end, however, Dorian's breaking white supremacy will go a long way towards bringing the stories of Johnson, Mays, Thurman, and the lesser lights of the black social gospel into the stories historians tell about American Christianity and even American history writ large. Jamar Tisby is the author of The Color of Compromise, The Truth About the American Church's Complicity in Racism, published in 2019 with Zondervan Press. He is a doctoral candidate in history at the University of Mississippi and serves as the president of The Witness, a black Christian collective. A graduate of Notre Dame University and Reformed Theological Seminary, Tisby has worked with Teach for America in the Mississippi Delta and taught sixth grade at a college preparatory school in Mississippi. He currently co-hosts the podcast, Pass the Mic. Our guest on this episode is Jamar Tisby. He is the author of a brand new book titled The Color of Compromise, The Truth About the American Church's Complicity with Racism. Jamar, I'm really excited to talk to you about this. Welcome to the podcast. Thrilled to be here. I am actually a longtime listener, and so I appreciate all the work you're doing on the mic as well as in the classroom 
and in the archives. Awesome. Yeah, great to have you on. And I'm glad we could get you because I know you've been doing a lot of speaking and traveling with this new book. Let's just try to get to know you for a second, Jamar. Now, you write this book as a Christian. Your audience is a Christian audience, at least primarily a Christian audience. Uh, you publish it with Zondervan, which is a Christian publishing house. Tell us a little bit about sort of where you situate yourself on the kind of Christian landscape, if you will, in uh, in America? Well, I think right now, as of this recording, I would situate myself in sort of a wilderness wandering. <laughs> You're with, we're, we're right there with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's really hard to place oneself at this time because so much of American Christianity has been and currently is politicized. And yeah. so to use a label such as evangelical or even to associate with a particular denomination, carries a whole ton of baggage within, you know, there's some degree to which we can never escape that because we're dealing with people who all have baggage, including myself. But I think today it's particularly fraught. If if I had to go back, though, and, and again, I hesitate to say this, but in a sense, I'm an evangelical of evangelicals. Yeah. I came to faith in high school through an evangelical youth ministry. I then attended the church that was associated with this youth ministry Although I've had an eclectic blend of theological background because I went to Catholic schools all through K through eight, huh. and then a public high school, and then a Catholic school for undergrad at Notre Dame. And it was there I got introduced to the Reformed theological tradition, which comes, of course, out of the Protestant Reformation, John Calvin, and all those guys, and uh, have attended missionary Baptist churches and all of that. Denominationally, I've been most closely affiliated with Presbyterianism, um, particularly the PCA. But as I said, I end where I began. Yeah. I'm not quite sure where to situate myself or what to call myself. Now, nowadays, I just say Christian. And, uh, you know, if folks have follow-up questions, we, we can dig a little deeper. Yeah, yeah. You know, I love hearing people's stories. So the sentence that you just uttered was, I went to Notre Dame and became exposed to the reformed faith, you know, like my, my <laughs> eyebrows went up. Um, you, you mind, you mind telling us a little bit about how that happened? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's part of my testimony. Yeah. And so it was at Notre Dame, which I attended partly because of its religious tradition. I was never Catholic, but it was a place where you could talk about God, where right. you could talk about religion. There were crucifixes in every classroom. We had priests and nuns on campus and so I appreciated that, right. that it was sort of organically massaged in the regular life of the college. Um, but it was there that a friend from high school, the same friend who had first talked to me about Jesus Christ, sent me John Piper's Desiring God. And mm -hmm. again, a lot of baggage. But yeah. at that time, it was a, a sort of reintroduction to me of the faith because it was very rooted in the text. It was a lot to chew on intellectually. And so I kind of gravitated toward that, but very quickly found out that there just weren't a lot of black people who identified <laughs> as reformed. Right, and right. so these issues of race and religion are are kind of always there in my experience. Yeah. Yeah. Great. We could do a whole episode just on, on that journey. Right. I mean, that's, that's phenomenal. Let's talk about the book though, Jamar. Color of Compromise, you are tackling a very, very uh, sensitive and controversial, it shouldn't be, but a sensitive and controversial uh, subject within the white evangelical community. Is it fair to say that you are, you are writing to white evangelicals in this book? 
I think largely so. Uh, you as a historian know this kind of bleeds across all right, denominations right. and traditions. It's it's an American way uh, and an American Christian way as much as a white evangelical way. But certainly our 21st century context and what evangelicalism has, in my opinion, become, yeah. this book speaks directly to that. So you mentioned very early in the book, you sort of lay out a warning Right. To all these kind of white Christians, let's just call them that, who are going to who are going to read this book. And you say white evangelicals, white Christians, uh, I think you actually use the term evangelicals, are going to find this book hard to read. Why? You know, I mean, some ways the answer is obvious, but I'd love to hear you tell us why this is going to be such a difficult read. And I think if I'm following you on social media and so forth, or at least the response, it already has proven to be a, a difficult read for many white, uh, white evangelical Christians. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. Why is this such a tough issue? So I had to include this in the introduction under a subheading, why this may be hard to read, because... Right of my own experience. So I speak and write and talk about race and justice uh, oftentimes to white evangelicals at conferences, schools all across the country. And I've heard just about every objection. Most of it comes from folks really wanting to have some sort of unity, some sort of integration. But what they end up doing is an end around the historical reality mm-hmm. of racism, white supremacy, segregation, slavery, all of those things. They sort of want to skip that part and get right to the reconciliation. And what I'm trying to say with the color of compromise is no, no, no. You actually can't even get to reconciliation unless you acknowledge these truths. Right. And so part of what makes it difficult is that these truths have been hidden or deliberately ignored or passed over for so long by so many people it's going to hit them hard because we get into the nitty gritty reality of rape and lynching and bondage and putting a price on personhood. And that's ugly, hard history to read. So emotionally, it's going to be draining for people. But it's also going to be draining because, particularly with white evangelicals, uh, many of the folks I've encountered have been raised with a certain narrative about race that uh, if if we're not post-racial, then at least we're post, you know, the really bad problems about race. Right. And so why can't we all just get along? I don't see color, those kinds of things. This is going to challenge that. And then lastly, it's going to be difficult because part of that narrative that many people have absorbed is the narrative that any talk about so-called social justice is somehow communist, Marxist, Mm -hmm. you're a social justice warrior, which I think is a noble term, but they use it as an epithet. Um, uh, And so I've heard all of these things. My my own salvation has been questioned because I bring up issues of of racism and white supremacy and the church's complicity with it. So there's just going to be some who sort of proverbially fold their arms, frown their foreheads, and completely reject this. And I just say, you know what? This book is here when you're ready. Yeah, yeah. So now you anticipate, you know, the amazing thing, and others have pointed this out too, the amazing thing is in that introduction, you kind of anticipate almost every criticism that the book has gotten so far. Now, some of these are more informal criticisms on Twitter and social media and stuff. What has been the response among the white evangelical community? I'm imagining it's probably mixed, but, you know, what have been some of the real points that people have raised that are, you know, you said, yep, there it is. Yep. Well, first I'll say the response has been sort of refreshingly positive. And in terms of, I just think this book, totally out of my hands, it it struck at a moment when more people than than ever really have been open to these conversations, uh, at least in my experience. 
And so it, it's not a fun history. People really struggle to describe what it's like to read the book because they, they can't quite say they enjoy reading right, about racism, right. but they do appreciate this knowledge. And And I stand on the shoulders of many, many historians who have done the primary research. And this is just a synthesis of right, that. Right. But um, as far as the objections, you know, it's been interesting. There's not usually a problem until we get to about the 1960s and 70s. Mm-hmm. That's when people really start to object to what I'm trying to convey in the book. So previous to the 1960s, about it's sort of ancient history in the modern American mind. And uh, the examples of racism are quite blatant. I mean, slavery is relatively overt as racism goes. Even segregation, when you think of, you know, people sitting in the back of the bus or having to go in the – a different entrance at a movie theater, signs over drinking fountains, that's relatively overt. It's when we start talking particularly about the politicization of evangelicalism, which is a rightward politicalization. It's yeah. it's it's not that it's being uh, equally politicized on both sides of the aisles in my rendering. This is a very Republican-leaning kind of white evangelicalism. And when you start pulling the threads and uncovering how some of these racist ideas have found purchase within a particular political party that one adheres to, that's when you get a whole lot of pushback. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Let's dive in a little bit to the actual kind of history here. And, you know, again, I think for many, for many um, scholarly historians, uh, you're drawing on a lot of you know, again, the synthesis is a great way of thinking about this. I often think about that the same way with my book on Trump, where, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I, I'm an early American historian by training, you know, but I relied on, you know, a lot of really good scholarship. Um, you do note, though, one of the things I think worth noting as you kind of synthesize all of this scholarship um, you, you mentioned that there were times in American history when white Christians have taken the path of racism when they had another option or they could have taken another more humane or more just path when it dealt with uh, race in America. And, you know, as a, as a history professor, I'm always trying to get my students to think about these questions of contingency, right? You know, these, these moments when you're studying a particular time period and you see, you know, if this person makes this choice, well, what may have happened in the next decade or so versus the fact that they made this choice and then this happened, right? So this idea of kind of the, the free will and the contingency and the choices that people make. Can you give us maybe one, maybe two examples of where you feel white Christians could have gone one way, but instead they chose the sort of path of injustice, if you will? I love that you bring up this idea of contingency. I think it's not very well understood outside of academic historical circles. Uh, But it's so important because people do have agency. People can make choices. And I have the contrast of your focus. I'm a second half U.S. historian. So as I'm going back and researching the colonial era on up to the Civil War, what really strikes me is that none of this was written in stone. Yeah. The fact that America would be a society stratified along racial lines mm-hmm. was not in any sense predetermined, but it was actually constructed and crafted by deliberate choices. Yeah. For example, in 1667, the Virginia Assembly passes a law that says uh, baptism would not emancipate people of African descent, Native Americans or mixed race descent. 
And that's an incredible decision yeah. for a lot of reasons. One, because you have the confluence of race, religion, and politics all together. You know, a legislative body passing a law about religion based on racial lines. And then it's also more than a century before the Declaration of Independence, more than a century before the ratification of the Constitution. And so these issues of race and religion and politics actually predate the political entity known as the United States. So there's never not been a time where this wasn't an issue. And yet it was still a choice. So what would America have looked like had assemblies not passed laws about Christianity and baptism and uh, people of African descent? Might enslaved persons have gained emancipation if they became Christians? Might uh, the contours of black Christianity look different? Might the church be more integrated because Mm -hmm. we wouldn't have had this huge stumbling block in the way of reconciliation? Uh, So that's one example. I think um, there are so many others in the late uh, 18th century. uh, Monica Najjar wrote an article Mm -hmm. about Baptists and how they were wrestling with this problem. And it was so interesting to me because they actually, as a denomination, passed a resolution sort of saying that you couldn't be a Christian in good standing and be a slaveholder, but it received such backlash from local congregations that they quickly backtracked on that decision and basically said, well, number one, it's a congregational issue, and number two, this is more of a social and a political issue than a church issue, so we're not going to touch it. And you see that echoed on down through the line, whether it's Presbyterians and the spirituality of the church or during the civil rights movement and this idea that civil rights protest was beyond the pale of what Christians or churches should be doing. This separation is an American tradition, unfortunately, within Christianity. Yeah, I mean, it's just so fascinating. I'm teaching this course on Pennsylvania history this semester. I, I kind of picked it up a few years ago. I thought it would be an interesting topic. And it's so interesting the way in which studying African-American history also kind of changes your view of history as kind of this linear progression. So, you know, real quick in Pennsylvania, their 1776 constitution was so radical that it allowed free blacks the right to vote, right? They didn't have to own land or anything. Uh, That was reaffirmed in a 1790 constitution. And then the suffrage was taken away from free blacks right in the middle of the kind of Jacksonian era when they wrote a constitution in 1838. So the trajectory is one towards greater liberty for blacks. And then there's this choice that's made in 1838 to disenfranchise African-Americans, free blacks after they. Uh So, I mean, these are all, you know, I love the way you phrase this, right? It didn't have to happen this way. It's not some kind of fate or providence or, you know, these kinds of things. I'd love to, I'd love to actually talk to you sometime, not now about like your reformed faith with providence and everything and all this, but that's a whole other, (laughs) that's a whole other conversation. By the way, I don't know if you knew this, but Drew is a, is a grad student. He's getting his PhD in native American history at Lehigh and Monica Nahar, who you just mentioned is one of his committee members. So he got, he got a great (laughs) kick out of your plug for, for, it was kind of funny as I was thinking, Oh, I might interject because I I know this argument. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, never mind. You took it away from me. Um, but, But, but I think, I mean, bringing up her work. I mean, I think that's a great point because in that moment, and I think this is an interesting way to kind of bring the story to white evangelicalism. In that moment, if you look at the church that has the best opportunity to really work against racism, it is this budding evangelical movement in the South against, you know, we've talked about this on the podcast before. I'm an Episcopalian. You know, my church in the South is the church of, of hierarchy and defending 
one's rank in society and working towards keeping all of these races and classes separate within worship. And and so, you know, it kind of is a funny thing that today now the shoe is on the other foot, so to speak. Yeah, that's a great point, Drew, about the role of I think this is Christine Hireman's argument in her book. Mm -hmm. I highly recommend it. Southern Cross, mm-hmm. right, in which she argues that many of these white evangelicals, especially Baptists and Methodists and so forth, were kind of anti-slavery. And then, you know, their children made the choice to assimilate to the larger culture, which Drew's church family at the time was propagating, right? right. This kind right. of this kind of social order. Yeah. And family and family, unfortunately. Yeah. I think it's also interesting because it was these much more non-hierarchical or, or flat kind of ecclesiastical arrangements that provided entree for black people to become Christians. Right. Um, because you didn't have to go to an elite school. You didn't have to have uh, all this sophisticated literacy or training. If you had a spiritual calling and yeah. others recognized yeah. it, you could be ordained, you could teach. Now, all of that's sort of prescribed within the limits of um, American racism generally. But right. uh, it, it is a lot of these more sort of local church authority kinds of denominations that allow black people to get a foothold in Christianity. And that's a question I get often is, you know, how can black people still be Christian? How are you still a Christian? Those kinds of things, because of all the racism um, that goes along with American Christianity. At the same time, there were pathways into it. But now, ironically, um, you know, those, those same denominations or groups often prove the most resistant to ideas of racial justice and progress. So often we get caught up in the macro, right? You know, racism is this structural thing, which it is. But then there are also these moments of possibility that, you know, people went the wrong way when they could have done something about the larger structures and the systemic uh, racism. Yeah, well, I mean, I think this discussion already is a great segue into another big point that you make in that racism has changed over time in American history. Racism has at once been this constant, but it's also been this thing that has evolved and changed and uh, in, in some ways transmogrified throughout American history. So maybe you could explain what you mean by that uh, a little bit more. Yeah, so I think it's critically important to, to understand racism on at least two levels. Brian Stevenson, who is the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative, said uh, the North won the Civil War, but the South won the Narrative War. Mm. And I think that's just a profound statement, and it goes far beyond just this single conflict in the middle of the 19th century. What he's saying is the narrative of racial difference or the narrative of white supremacy is the underlying or the background operating system. And what we see as racism are sort of just the apps, and any app that you get is going to have an update. And a lot of them, you know, you come out with brand new apps, and that's what we're seeing with racism. So the narrative operating system of white supremacy or this narrative of racial difference remains consistent throughout the generations, but the way it manifests itself can differ. And so I think there are three broad movements, and within those you can certainly subdivide and further categorize. But uh, in terms of how racism manifests itself outwardly, you see uh, first slavery and then Jim Crow segregation. And now, building off Emerson and Smith's book, Divided by mm. Faith, I think you see a racialized society where it has become largely uh, unacceptable in the public sphere to use racial slurs. I say largely. <laughs> right. um, 
and uh, to 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 engage in overt acts of racism that were more familiar in the past, such as uh, you know public lynchings or cross burnings or wantonly using the N word as a racial epithet. That's become less acceptable. But what is still in, in existence is a massive wealth gap between uh, white and black people. Uh, an unemployment rate, which even though it's at historic lows, remains about uh, twice as high for people of African descent. Uh, black mothers die in maternity-related deaths at three times the rate of white women. And so there's a health care disparity. And so I see those as distinct movements in the way racism manifests itself. But what's underlying all of this and the reason we can't get rid of racism is because we haven't really dealt with the narrative of racial difference uh, in, a, in a holistic way. Yeah, that that leads me to kind of this next question I have for you, where you use a couple of terms that maybe some of our listeners may be hearing for the first time right now. But you say in, in dealing with kind of white evangelicals, white Christians uh, today, and their response to this kind of systemic racism that you're talking about, you use the phrase accountable individualism and then also anti-structuralism. I think both of those terms are, are really loaded in a good way and helpful uh, for this conversation, especially when dealing with some of your white Christian critics. Can you define these terms for me? Accountable individualism and anti-structuralism. What are you getting at with those terms? Because I think they're important. Yes, uh, those come directly from the book I just referenced, Michael Emerson and right. Christian Smith's book, Divided by Faith. And so I really do see history and sociology working in tandem when we try to dissect what's happening with race in America. And so that's been really helpful. And when they talk about um, accountable individualism, they're basically getting at the idea that for white evangelicals, even the way they think about theology actually reinforces some of the racial divides that verbally and ostensibly they want to close. Yeah. So, in other words, you know, many people, uh, white evangelicals specifically, will will be all for racial reconciliation and integration and all those things. They won't speak a word against it. But what happens is the way they understand their faith actually makes it harder to move towards those things. So accountable individualism means that the individual is solely responsible for her or his actions, which has some truth to it for sure. We were just talking about agency earlier in the podcast, but what it fails to do is account for the way systems and institutions and whole communities can have an impact on the choices that people make or shape people's outlooks. So that makes it hard, for example, in a case like Ferguson and the death of Mike Brown, mm -hmm. where many white evangelicals were looking at this strictly as an isolated incident. They were focusing on Brown's actions or even the officer's actions and coming to conclusions based off of this, rather than, as many African Americans did, Christian or not, looking at the broader scope of police interaction right. in predominantly black communities and saying, Whatever the specific circumstances of this encounter, this is not the first time something like this has happened. It's part of a larger pattern. Just the emphasis on the communal aspect and the systemic aspect is something that white evangelicals have a really tough time grasping, partly because of this accountable individualism. Now, let me follow up a little bit on that. 
what is there specifically about kind of white evangelicals theology or their understanding of the Bible or, you know, is this a, is this an evangelical problem? Is this a problem with kind of Protestantism writ large, you know, that celebrates individual, you know, one day we'll stand alone before God, you know, I mean, what are the elements within evangelical theology at work here. And then as a, someone who identifies as, you know, again, a Christian sort of in the reformed tradition, perhaps, how do you respond to that kind of criticism? If you just take the idea of individualism, that's a Western issue. That's yeah. an American issue. That's a Protestant issue. But what Emerson and Smith highlight is that as individualistic as society is as a whole, it's even more so within evangelicalism. Yeah. And I think it's for all the reasons you just mentioned, it goes back to beliefs about sin and salvation and that the fundamental problem with the world is sin and not just sin writ large, it's an individual's sin. And then the remedy is a personal relationship, an individual relationship with Jesus Christ. And concomitantly, folks like Billy Graham, whose approach to uh, civil rights and, and racial justice has really been applauded by many people. I think there's some room for criticism because his approach was essentially, you know, one changed heart at a time mm-hmm. is how you tackle issues of racism in America. And so the more people we convert to Christianity, the fewer racists there will be, yeah. which goes completely against the historical record. Right, right. Um, and so that that individualism is a hyper individualism within evangelicalism yeah. and makes it really difficult to explain the systemic and institutional manifestations of racism. Yeah. And that is the number one issue I bring up if I just have, you know, 30 seconds to talk about race to a group of white evangelicals. Yeah. I talk about the difference between individual and institutional racism yeah. because the way institutional racism functions, it doesn't require an individual having personal malice towards someone. All it requires is for the system to function as it was designed to do, which gives advantages to certain groups of people and disadvantages to others apart from anyone's individual action. Uh, So that's a huge issue. And I don't know how to do anything but write about it and speak about it and try to explain it as clearly as I can. This always is a big question I, too, have. I grew up Catholic. It's why I spent a lot of time sort of flirting with Catholicism. Um, You know, I mean, because... Because, I mean, because the Catholics have their own problems on race and have a, you know, they don't have a great history. But, you know, I'm always I'm always struck. I remember like when Rick Warren's book, The uh, Purpose Driven Life, came out and like there were these churches that were having these like 40 days of community. Right. You know, and it was <laughs> like the ol- only white evangelicals would have for would have 40 days of community and advertise it because they're they're just searching for some kind of a community. <laughs> You know, yeah, yeah. It's, it's all there. It's it, you know, only people who are deeply individualistic in their faith are kind of yearning for community in this way. It's funny how how often uh, Catholicism has come up in this conversation. But I distinctly remember at Notre Dame they had, and they still have, the Center for Social Concerns. Yeah. And it wasn't until years later that I thought about like in most white evangelical colleges and universities, you wouldn't have anything like that. No. At least not with that name, because. Um, there's this tension among many white evangelicals between the so-called gospel and social justice, as if they're two yeah. separate things, yeah. uh, where many Christian traditions never separated it, and particularly black Christian traditions right. Right. haven't separated it because there was no appeal 
to for a religion that talked solely about spiritual emancipation and didn't talk about physical and right. material liberation as right. well. Right. But that gets again to the communal, to the systemic, to the institutional, which because of the hyper individualism of modern evangelicalism, I think makes it really hard for folks to grasp. And just to be fair to kind of, you know, my fellow white evangelicals, uh, they're not the only ones. Uh, you know, I mean, right. I think I think Reinhold Niebuhr, you know, I just I just finished Richard Whiteman Fox's great biography of Reinhold Niebuhr. And we actually had a documentary filmmaker who did a uh, documentary on Niebuhr on the show recently. I mean, Niebuhr was the same way, despite his kind of liberal Protestantism. He never quite was able to see racism as something more than just addressing individual problems rather yeah. than the systemic issues. So this is I think this is a problem for not just Protestant evangelicals, but kind of all white, white Christians of all types. Absolutely. Absolutely. And in the introduction to the book, I define racism as I use it in the book. And I borrow from Beverly Daniel Tatum's Why Are All mm. the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? where she says racism is a system of advantage based on race. And it's really important because it emphasizes the systemic oppression and that racism can operate through impersonal systems and not simply through malicious words and actions of individuals. So I think a lot of this, you know, beyond white evangelicals is how we define racism. And if we define racism narrowly in terms of individuals, people's actions, then the solutions are going to be individual. That's, hey, let's grab a cup of coffee. Let's go yeah, have lunch. Yeah. That's some of my best friends are black. Right. You know, if if I have good individual relationships with people across color lines, then I'm doing my part to dismantle racism when yeah, yeah. that I say is necessary, but it's not sufficient. Yeah. We need a broader understanding of the way racism works. Yeah. And so I assume anti-structuralism, then it's just the same way of describing um, you know, I think how do Emerson and Smith use that just simply as the inability to grasp these kind of systemic structural problems? Is that accurate? That's absolutely right. Yeah. Um, yeah. That social structures really have very little bearing on an individual's choices right. or beliefs or, you know, the way they're shaped in that. Yeah. The problems come from the harmful choices of individuals rather than policies, procedures, practices set up and operating, you yeah. know, somewhat invisibly in uh, the modern American eye. In my own history, I'll just be kind of transparent here. In my own sort of history growing up, I'm half Italian, half Slovakian, kind of new immigrants, late 19th century, early 20th century. I used to hear my grandfather who was, you know, God rest his soul, but I mean, he was a racist in some ways. I hope my mom and dad aren't listening to this, right? But, but he, you know, he would always say like, what do you mean? I'm Italian. I wasn't here. I had nothing to do with slavery, right? You know, even within this kind of working class Catholicism, there still was still this kind of, um, you know, this kind of accountable individualism, right? It's not on me, you know, kind of mm -hmm. thing. And, and definitely you're pushing back on this in so many good ways. Let's let's get into some sort of really contemporary stuff here, Jamar. Let's get yeah. into the let's get into some borderline between history and politics here. I was really curious and wanted to hear you talk about uh, Black Lives Matter. Um, you make a distinction and I'm not quite sure. Unpack this for me a little bit. Uh, you talk about the difference between Black Lives Matter as a kind of idea, right, in small lowercase letters, right? Black Lives Matter versus the movement capital B, right? Black Lives Matter. Why do you make that distinction? Why is that necessary? I wrestle with that distinction because yeah. I don't want to 
I don't I don't want to draw too sharp a line between those two, but I I think of it in terms of part of my audience is one that instinctively and reflexively recoils at the phrase black lives matter. Right. All lives uh, matter. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Blue lives matter. All right, of those right. things that we see in in popular culture which goes beyond Christianity, uh, you know, it's it's a racial thing, it's an American thing. So I'm trying to walk folks deeper yeah. into a, a more complicated, nuanced understanding of the movement as I see it. And so delineating between Black Lives Matter as a principle and Black Lives Matter as an organization is one way to do that. Maybe not the best way, but one way. And so I think that Christians should not reflexively dismiss the phrase because if you think about it, The principle of Black Lives Matter is something every Christian ought to be able to get behind. It's Mm -hmm. an assertion of the imago Dei in people of African descent. It is a cry of lament that Black lives historically and in the present day do not seem to matter as much as other people's lives, particularly white Americans. And so what is there about that to disagree with, especially if you know the history? And I delineate that from the organization because many uh, conservative, theologically conservative and socially conservative white and black Christians, to be honest, would not ride with Black Lives Matter as an organization because of some of its sexual ethics, some of the other social issues they get into beyond simply race. And so I'm positing that there's a way that you can support Black Lives Matter as a principle even if you aren't, you know, a right. card-carrying member of the organization. But I will say the organization is very decentralized. Yeah. It is intentionally so. And I would encourage folks to check out their local chapter because oftentimes it's Christians who are at the forefront and yeah. leading yeah. these local chapters so that the founders or whatever impressions one may have from news headlines, that's not the whole story. And it's certainly not every local story. So I would encourage folks to get out and see uh, what's happening locally. And honestly, I, I have no qualms about getting involved in yeah. organizations like this because I know what I believe and I know what I'm pushing for and where I can align with some groups and where I would differ with some groups. Uh, but not everyone is there. So I'm just trying to yeah. help folks understand that you don't have to dismiss this whole movement yeah. or this whole phrase out of hand. There's some stuff you should understand about it first. So it's more of a kind of, if I'm summarizing you correctly here, it's more of a kind of strategic move, knowing your audience, right, for this particular <laughs> book, right? Yeah, it's a pedagogical yeah, move yeah. Uh, to, to sort of help introduce a conversation. And the reason why I, I'm so appreciative of that as someone who also tries to write for, for the church you know, I got pushed back on my Trump book because I was giving too much of the benefit of the doubt. I was trying to empathize more with how white evangelicals could have understood Trump and why they would have voted for him. And I got pushed back for not throwing my tribe, so to speak, under the bus enough. <laughs> and I always would respond as kind of, you know, this is a I like the way you put it, a kind of pedagogical strategy. Right. I, I know who my audience is and I know what's going to to allow the conversation to go forward and what hot button things are going to completely shut the conversation down. Right. So, yeah, I, I totally sympathize with what you're trying to do there, especially knowing your audience. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's not going to satisfy the folks who already right. sort of get it and are activists right. and and I and I get that, and I I tried not to 
downplay or denigrate the movement as a whole. So I, I hope people yeah. understand that. And yeah. um, honestly, there's been good payoff. There's been quite a few folks who have been able to understand it in a new way. And ultimately, I think that's more beneficial than than not. Yeah. Well, our time's just about up, Jamar. I have one more question for you. I'm really fascinated by the kind of, I think it's fair to say, the kind of career you're forging. Now, you are a graduate student in uh, history at the University of Mississippi. I'm assuming you're working on a traditional historical study of uh, African-American history. The color of compromise, you know, has a lot of stuff about the past in it, a lot of history. Uh, I've also heard you talk in terms of almost, uh, like an activist. Maybe I'm creating false categories here, but how do you bring together your kind of passion as, a, as an up-and-coming scholar of African-American history, your passion for the church, your passion for writing books like Color of Compromise? I should add, we didn't get time to, to go over this, but the whole last couple of chapters are about suggestions for moving forward, you know, some practical things to do to deal with this history. So, so do you ever think about that? Do you ever think about, you know, am I a historian? Am I an activist? Am I both? You know, when do I take one hat off and put another hat on, you know, where, where are you heading with, with this very promising career that you're forging for yourself? Uh, great question. I, I want somebody to tell me what <laughs> I'm going to be when I grow up. Finally, <laughs> I'm still figuring it out, but I will say this, I'm honestly fighting for my life. I'm fighting for the life of my son yeah. and uh, my brother and everybody who looks like me in a world that has traditionally devalued uh, darker skin. Yeah. And so this has never been to me a purely intellectual or scholarly endeavor. This has always been about changing the world. Yeah. It's been about igniting a fire in people and putting a burden on people to act now so that the history of complicity with racism would not be the present or the future, inevitably. Uh, and I'm also not coming to this straight out of undergrad. I've yeah, had yeah. 10 years in public education. I've gotten my MDiv. I've been involved in local church ministry. And so all of that has helped shape um, my conviction that history is a very mighty tool to help folks in the present day understand how we got here but also what to do about it. Yeah. And that's why I end the book the way I do, because I don't I, I do want people to feel the weight of America's racist history, particularly in regards to the church. And I want them to feel such a weight that they feel like I got to get this off my back. I got to do something about it. Yeah. And so here are a few suggestions to go forward. As for my career, I'm not sure. I mean, I would love to do some combination of preaching, teaching, speaking mm. and writing, which is what I'm basically doing now. Uh, it just boils down to who's going to sign a paycheck and right, uh, sure. how I can keep a roof over my head. But my goal has has always been to use scholarship as, as an instrument for change. Yeah. And whatever that looks like or wherever that leads is where I'm willing to go. Because honestly, I think we need more activists. I think the civil rights movement never ended and we're in a different phase of it right now. I think we need more anti-racist. And uh, I want to be part of that voice. And the last thing I'll say is, no matter how you think of the historical profession, history is about truth telling. Yeah. And whenever you tell the truth, that's going to shake the pillars of power. And you can either be bold about that or avoid it, but it's going to happen if you're doing your job. So that's just something we all have to wrestle with. 
What do you say, Jamar, to the scholar who says, by just telling good African-American history, truth-telling, storytelling, without the additional last couple chapters of your book or the activist part, that in and of itself is a thing that changes the world. How would you respond to someone who said that to you? I think I would largely agree. I mean, yeah. I think of Du Bois, who was a sociologist by training, yeah. but but wrote a great book on African-American history called Black Reconstruction. Right. And he, he did that on purpose. He did that as a corrective to, you know, sort of Dunning School right. interpretations of Reconstruction and the glorification of the Confederacy and white supremacy. He did that as a corrective and he did. Obviously, he was involved in a whole bunch more. But that book in and of itself, decades later, becomes a seminal work in helping to revise understandings of the past to be more accurate. So I think uh, and then and that's really how I got led to the academic study of history. It was with Ferguson and historians saying, well, here's redlining, here's restrictive covenants, here's the origins of the police force. And just bringing that knowledge to the fore can be not just information, but transformation. So, you know, we're indebted to the work that people do in those dusty archives and those lonely hours writing. I think that's valuable work. Well, Jamar, keep doing what you're doing because we need your voice out there. Um, You know, I'm joking with you before we went on the air here. I said, you know, are you surviving this? Right. Because I know you're 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 speaking to uh, sort of to the the belly of the beast, so to speak, and trying to bring some truth to power. Um, So so again, we really appreciate what you're doing. And thanks so much for taking some time. I know you're busy. Thanks for taking some time for to be on the show with us today. It is my privilege. I love what historians like you are doing, bringing this knowledge to the public through podcasts, through writing, through speaking, all of those things. So it's good to be in this together. And I'm sure our paths will cross again down the road. So again, thanks, Jamar. All right. Take care. All right. I tell you, Drew, Jamar is doing some incredible things. You know, this guy's you know not your typical graduate student in history. Like he said in the interview, he has several years behind him in working with Teach for America. It'll be interesting to see if he decides to go the academic route, right, in, in terms of teaching. It seems like he has a much bigger platform in, like you said, the kind of public speaking and writing and preaching about these issues of racial injustice in our country. Well, yeah, I mean, this is a very timely episode. I've been entering into some conversations with my own congregation about the kind of deeper history of of racism and the way the church was really one of the architects of of creating the racist society that we live in today. And and what does it mean? Uh, you know, as you said before the interview, you know, is it just go back and find the token people of color and and tell their stories or is it to actually go and look at the deeper history and the structural history yeah. of, of, of the ways in which our congregations, which you know, many of which are, are very dedicated to doing anti-racist work today. You know, when I talk to my own congregation about these issues, it's not falling on deaf ears, but in many ways they still exist under that individualist kind of mentality that we were discussing in the interview. Just, well, I did this, and we did this as a congregation, and and well, no, we actually need to maybe be doing a little bit more. Well, than I that. think those are starting places. I think for much in the right. white evangelical community, I mean, you know, if you can even get them to do something related to racial reconciliation in a kind of individualistic way, it's a huge step. I mean, I know a lot of these kind of white evangelicals that that Tisby is is addressing, and sadly to say, he's got his work cut out for them in trying to. Uh, get them to move beyond this, what did he call it, this automated 
individualism uh, that's that's so embedded within white evangelical Protestantism. I like the way you put it, a kind of hyper-individualism. How do you wrestle with these questions? You have to start somewhere, and I think that's what Tisby's at least trying to do uh, in this book. I mean, you look at the way you look at the way Tisby's being received in certain sectors of the white evangelical community. I mean, when the book came out, they did a review of the book at a sort of white evangelical reformed website called the Gospel Coalition. And looking at that Twitter feed was just so depressing because Jamar's right. Uh, people were actually questioning his commitment to his faith questioning his salvation, which is a big deal in evangelicalism, (laughs) all because he was calling attention to these social justice issues. So what strikes me is Jamar is going right into the belly of the beast. I think I said this in the interview. There's a famous California megachurch pastor named John MacArthur. Many of our leaders have never heard of him, but he's very influential. And he was the one who put forth this kind of statement, which was signed by hundreds of white evangelical leaders, that social justice is incompatible with the teachings of the Bible, right? I mean, this is a very popular view within white evangelicalism. But but white evangelicals are often so fearful and they so have that baggage, like we talked about in the commentary today, of the social gospel, that somehow it's all about just saving your soul and not kind of living out your faith in the world, and I wrote about this in the in the conclusion to my Trump book, too. I think white evangelicals, and I think we even talked about this when we were talking about in my commentary on Chris Graham at, at the Richmond Church, the Cathedral of the Confederacy, which I know you've been using with your church. You know, this idea that social justice is not part of living out one's faith is sort of deeply embedded in these white evangelical communities. And this is why Tisby's getting such a pushback. Uh, like I said in the conclusion of the Trump book, these black social gospelers that Gary Dorian writes about in this book I talked about in the commentary, Breaking White Supremacy, we white evangelicals can learn an incredible amount uh, from their courage and their views. Whether we agree with them theologically or not, we need to take a hard look at what the civil rights movement did in terms of fighting these things and uh, get over some of our petty theological differences uh, with with liberal Christianity. So what is it? Three cheers for, <laughs> for Jamar Tisby and the work that he's doing. You're going to see his name down the road, um, whether it's in a kind of historical scholarship field or whether it's in this kind of activist field or maybe a little bit of both. It'll be interesting to see how his career develops. Although I know he, he's quick to say, like, I'm already in the middle of my career, right? I've been teaching for 10 years and so forth. He's not your typical 24, 25, 26-year-old graduate student. Well, that was a lot. That was a lot. There's a lot to think about. You know, hopefully this episode is going to weigh heavy on your hearts. Get out there and buy a copy of The Color of Compromise. Um, You know, if you want to bring this kind of stuff into your communities and your historical societies and your museums, you know, head over to the Lindhurst Group, give Bob Bedia, shoot him an email, get the conversation started there. He's happy to help. Yeah, I think that's a wrap, Drew. Another thoughtful and soul-cleansing episode in the book. Sobering. Sobering. That's a great, that's a much better term, yeah. Until next time, may your way of improvement always lead home. This has been a production of The Way of Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewaveimprovement.com. The Way of Improvement Leads Home is a member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. Check out the other podcasts on the network by heading over to recordedhistory.net. 
If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcatcher of choice so others may more easily find this podcast. And let's continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter. Follow us at TWOILH Podcast. The podcast is brought to you through the generous support of Gretchen Adams, Margaret Graves, Kate Logan, Lisa DeGuardi, and Ron Schooler. Also, many thanks to our sponsor, Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future, as well as the Lindhurst Group. The podcast was recorded at the High Center Studios of Messiah College. Thanks to Ed Ark for his continued support. Original music is by Overholt. Many thanks to our guest, Jamar Tisby. Our studio producer is Abby LaBianca. I've been your producer, Drew Durley-Hermling, and your host, as always, is John Fiat.